obviously he believed in his deeds before being erased from uh, the record of guilt by switching sides. He is a very multifaceted, interesting case. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. This is the fifth episode of Branch 251, the podcast about the world's first criminal trial dealing with accusations of atrocity crimes by Syrian officials. My name is Fritz Streif, and for those who are tuning in for the first time, I'm a human rights lawyer based in Paris, and my work focuses for a large part in recent years on accountability for international crimes committed in Syria. And I'm Karam Shamali. I'm a Syrian journalist based in Berlin, and I have been covering the war in Syria for the past eight years. Today on the podcast, we will pick up where we left off last week about the main accused Anwar R. We're having a guest on the podcast today, and our guest has met Anwar R. personally, and so he really knows him quite well. Yes, that's right. We are very happy to have uh, Christoph Reuter on the podcast today. He has been covering the Syrian war for the German weekly Der Spiegel since the very beginning. Uh, he first arrived in Syria in 1989. Uh, he traveled there to study Arabic and uh, he covered the Iraq war and the crises that followed in the region. And since 2011, the Syrian uprising and the civil war and pretty much everything that has to do with it. And then in the second part of the episode, after our conversation with Christoph Reuter, we'll give you a short court update. The court was in session from Monday till Friday, and we're recording this podcast as the court is still in session. So we'll update you on anything interesting and important that might still happen after recording next week. But now first to our conversation with Christoph Reuter. We started by asking him what his specific interest in this case is and in the person Anwar. Well, it's two-folded. Uh, first of all, of course, he is the first high-ranking member of one of the Syrian intelligence services standing trial in Germany. Uh, and the second is that I, uh, I met him uh, for two full days in 2013 when he had just defected a few months earlier. And for me, he, he represents uh, a multi-layered case of uh, people who pursue a career within a dictatorship, who have their own red lines, which we don't, don't see, don't understand, because we would, uh, from our comfortable perspective, we would judge his whole existence as it's it's wrong you can't uh, you can't be a henchman in such a system um but yeah you have many reasons for people to start a career not to know other options to defect uh, and 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 so he is a very multifaceted interesting case how how did you come across him you were in jordan why did you decide to interview him over two days what was the interest back then everybody we talked to said if you really want to know the details of the intelligence system and how uh, the apparatus worked talk to anwar raslan huh. he is like the he's an encyclopedic memory uh, extremely analytical what kind of man did you talk to? I mean, how, how, how did he come across if, to describe him as a person? Well, uh, first, uh, a bit shy or reluctant because he had 
he had never talked to Western journalists about the, the most uh, secretive details of his work. Uh, so it was kind of unusual. Obviously, he believed in his deeds before being erased from uh, the record of guilt right. uh, by switching sides. He never made a secret of his previous role, his position, uh, I mean, even the, uh, the his um, testimony or his statement, uh, which was read in court, he had signed with his last official rank as colonel. Yeah, in 2020, in, in May 2020. Yeah. Just yeah. now, yeah. Uh, he is, in a way, stuck in... Uh, uh, framed in uh, the belief that it can't have all been wrong what I did. Mm -hmm. My career was right in terms of my rank I received and what was wrong uh, should not be, should not count anymore since I switched to the right side. Mm -hmm. But once he had started and we were asking very detailed questions about specific bombings, specific groups, uh, uh, he, he he liked it. He became interested in uh, speaking out about what had happened and uh, displayed in, in enormous memory, an enormous understanding for details which mattered. Yeah, we talked uh, with him for two days through the... Well, the, the functioning of uh, the intelligence system. So it was an extremely interesting subject and uh, Anwar Roslan was spilling the beans. Sounds a little bit like what he did uh, last week in Koblenz in terms of detail and in terms of uh, uh, the willingness to, to describe um, his, his side of the story. Um, what I found interesting when we talked to him in Amman was that uh, whatever we could double check certain scenes where we found a second witness uh, proved to be precise, proved to be correct. So from what he, he said uh, in 2013, we didn't find any reason to believe that he was faking anything mm. or exaggerating. And what he told us was, of course, um, uh, enormously damaging to the efforts of the regime. So that kind of information he shared with you, the elite and the Syrian secret service would have access to in a way. Do you agree on this? A very, very small circle, even within the intelligence services. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, it was, this is why we were so interested. It was extremely difficult to find people who would know uh, the, the internal details, even him. He said, I have this and this indication, but he was not... He was not part of the very, very small inner circle who took this decision, but he was close enough to have, well, witnessed uh, specific details. Uh, and from what he what he told us, why he had defected, it was uh, a mix that may sound strange for outsiders. First, uh, it was his. He was morally appalled by uh, the, the mass killing, which started to started in 2000, early 2012. And the other thing, which was as important to him as the, the moral 
issue was that he was professionally offended hmm. by the regime. Because he said uh, he did not mind to interrogate people with torture before uh, if they they were suspicious of something. Mm-hmm. He was part of the. Uh, he was a he was a complacent henchman before that he, he played the rules of the regime that uh, people get beaten up, get tortured to confess. But then he said they brought people I knew they hadn't participated mm-hmm. in anything. They they had done nothing. And we were told, well, they are 200 terror suspects, so deal with them, treat them. Uh, and uh, he still believed that uh, as an investigator, as being head of the uh, Department of Investigation, uh, he should investigate something, but there wasn't nothing to be investigated anymore. It was just about mass punishment, deterrence. Uh, so again and again, uh, over the hours we talked, he reiterated that his work had been ridiculed. You were already hinting at it just now, um, but if you were to describe what he told you guys at the time, what his role was before defecting and before he started disagreeing with what was happening, he was more talking about uh, the time since uh, the uprising had begun, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but not because he, uh, I, I don't know if he wanted to hide uh, what he had done before, but uh, you have to take into consideration the time we met, early 2013, everybody was expecting the downfall of the regime right. sooner or later. So he may simply have thought, I, I should switch sides because the regime will go down and I should be on the right side of history. I mean, I don't have full evidence uh, for everything because uh, at least he didn't tell us, yeah, I'm an opportunist, you know, yeah. I always uh, stick out my finger and wait where the wind blows from. Yeah. <laughs> then fast forward from 2013 to 2020 last week when we were in Koblenz, um, you saw him again, this time him sitting there as a defendant. When you talked to him in 2013, he was a defector in a very different kind of context. Now he is a defendant in court. And if you if you sort of try to compare the two, how did he come across to you now? And, and did that did your impression change much? Or how what kind of man did you meet this time? I think he has, uh, he had various options uh, how to defend himself and uh, I was not surprised that he chose to kind of accept uh, the court, accept the proceedings and go into the details of what was his precise responsibility at that time Mm -hmm. when how he allegedly was dismissed um he goes into the details and probably he thinks he is better than the witnesses who accuse him Mm -hmm. in terms Mm -hmm. of details memory what happened where um it's a very formal way formal approach yeah and his last edit i'm very sorry for what happened under the regime etc etc um uh, didn't come very very fully hearted um what i saw is kind of extension from uh, the, the time I, I met him under different circumstances was his 
pride of his professionalism. Yeah. yeah. That uh, no matter if he's investigator investigating um, alleged crimes against the regime, if he is investigating how he was used as a tool in an absurd plot, a very successful one to claim that there is a big foreign funded jihadi danger, mm-hmm. or if he is investigator in his own case to destruct the version of the prosecutor. Yeah. Now he's become an investigator in his in his own case. It, it seemed to me also that we've seen these kinds of defense strategies in, in other sort of very complex international uh, criminal cases where the defendants take on their own case as 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 sort of a full time job, and I'm, I'm I'm personally really curious to see um, whether whether that whether he confirms that um, going forward in in the months to come. Another thing that we wanted to ask you is, you wrote in one of your articles on the trial for Der Spiegel about the fact that in Syria and you know regime sympathizers are actually sort of celebrating this trial in Koblenz because it's a defector it's or two defectors two traitors in their eyes uh, on trial can you talk about that a little bit yeah uh what i find uh, dangerous is this uh, early triumph that we have brought one of the henchmen one of the main perpetrators to justice because you could only arrest anwar raslan because he defected. So you have this implication. The uh, the main culprits, uh, they all still uh, are in Syria. So uh, Anwar Raslan is, uh, is easy prey. Yeah. He was freely walking around the city, the refugee center, knowing that he would or he might be you know, identified by by other Syrians that might know him from 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 earlier. So, how is it possible that he would not even consider that he might at some point trip and be faced with justice? And what is more, going to the police in Berlin and asking for support and security and protection from the German authorities. This contrast between feeling uh, entitled to being protected by the German state and, on the other hand, potentially, quite potentially, being identified by uh, others that um, may see themselves as victim of his earlier actions. How do you reconcile that in his case? Well, uh, the incident that finally led to the investigation against him and to the arrest is perfect uh, nutshell to explain him and his mindset that Mm -hmm. uh, he probably was followed or under surveillance by people because he's professional to to see if the same people the same person uh, are following him uh, watching him Um, so he goes to the German police and tells them yeah and and, People might, the, the regime wants to kill me because I was head of the investigation department and then, and then, and then. Um, this is perfect mm-hmm. to explain his error, his misjudgment. He came here with a visa. Uh, he didn't have to walk through Albania and Serbia and through the dusty plains of southern Hungary. No, he could fly in 
on a visa issued by uh, a German embassy because one of the most honest, prominent uh, opposition members had vetted for him. Right. Um, so uh, it's... He felt uh, he had all reason to believe that uh, with his change, with his defection, uh, he is uh, he is a bonus point now for the opposition. He worked for years for the opposition. He he flew to Geneva to the conference on an official delegation. Right. So the public mood has changed. Uh, in 2014-15, Anwar Roslan walking the streets. Yeah, so what? He's in Berlin. Um, uh, he is a member of the opposition now. And if the regime, if Assad would have come down in 2013, probably he would be one of the new leaders of a maybe not too democratic system either. Mm -hmm. But nobody would ask for his guilt if you have thousands of people or hundreds of high-ranking officers who have done much worse. Mm -hmm. um, but now he is available yeah. mm -hmm. and I think he didn't understand that uh, the public mood the perception has changed and uh, yeah mm -hmm. when he finally tripped so to say he went to the police right and started talking about what he did it's it's not it's not that they hunted him down is it no no the opposite uh, yeah. no he <laughs> he stumbled into this fundamental misunderstanding that when he speaks about his former role, his position, that this will not lead to the German government offering him protection, but to German prosecutors opening a file against him. This is the most perfect example to understand how he ticks. He did the right thing, so he should be accepted in the other camp. Yeah. He probably knows and he would fully understand that Assad's regime would cut him into little pieces if they get him. Um, but yeah. he does not, or he did not understand that although he did the right thing, uh, he still brought to justice what he did or what happened under his responsibility in 2012. He must be squarely confused at this point. I guess so. Probably he feels that he is made a scapegoat for something he doesn't want to be a responsibility for. Yeah. But again, I think mm -hmm. it's extremely important that uh, this case, uh, that uh, the system of Syria is brought to trial, um, only we should not exaggerate the, the success. We have done so much and we have brought the system to justice. No, we have not. And we should not uh, give up for the, the bigger cases. Yeah. yeah. No, this is also what we understand from, from a lot of the victims and survivors who are saying this is just one small step for accountability for Syria. And we are not there yet by far. They say it's more symbolic than actually achieving justice for Syria. And Syria. Yeah, in a way, it's a symbolic case. It's a, <laughs> it sounds odd. Mm -hmm. But uh, it it is. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Christoph, for shedding light. I think on a number of the complexities of this of this case, of this trial, and of the person Anwar R. I'm pretty sure that our listeners are going to appreciate your insights very much. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. Let's hope. Yeah. Good luck.
That was our conversation with uh, Christoph Reuter of Der Spiegel. Uh, you can read his articles on Syria and the trial on uh, their website, spiegel.de, including, of course, on the international section with uh, his articles in English, not only in German. We'll be linking to his articles and his book in our show notes. All right, now let's go to the second part of today's episode, and uh, namely what happened at court this week, Fritz. Yeah, so the court was in session again this week for three days. Uh, we were not there ourselves, but um, for what we understand, this is what happened. On Wednesday, the judges heard three witnesses about the statement that Iad A, the second defendant, uh, gave to federal police in 2018 before he was arrested. Um, yeah. In that statement, he provided a description of Branch 251 and other branches um, of the Syrian security services that he worked for. And it really sounded like he was telling the investigators everything he knew, including mm -hmm. crimes uh, that were committed there and the, 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 the structural nature of, of all of that. But the thing was, he provided this account at that time as a witness, not as a defendant or an accused. Mm -hmm. um, he was heard as a witness. And so now, already in pre-trial, so before this trial started in Koblenz in April, already then his defense tried to dismiss this, uh, this information, this testimony, um, as inadmissible evidence. But already in the pre-trial proceedings, um, that motion was rejected. And um, yeah, this week, the court um, heard the police interrogator from that first police interview with Iad A. Um, and um, it looks like admitted it into evidence. We learned that uh, in his 2018 statement, Iad A confirmed the use of torture at Branch 251, uh, including before 2011, uh, which contradicts what Anwar R is uh, claiming or he claimed last week, uh, he mentioned that they used a specific torture method before 2011, which is uh, using boiled water on uh, detainees. He said that in May 2011, which is two months after the uprising, about 10 bodies were transported from uh, Branch 251 to be buried. And according to his statement, uh, those were bodies of detainees who died under torture. Yeah, and... If you look at the time here, he's mentioning that this happened in May 2011. So that means that right. that happened after the beginning of the indictment uh, hmm. period, which was April 2011, and before early June 2011, which is when Anwar R says he was degraded in the hierarchy. So this is uh, evidence both against Anwar R and Iada um, that fits. Uh, in the indictment filed by the by the prosecutor. We also heard from uh, survivors who were in the court. Uh, they were there to follow the trial this week. And uh, to them, the details of his statement were really gut-wrenching. Ayad A said that uh, one old man was hit on the head upon arrival at the branch and uh, dropped it right away, you know, before even entering the, the facility. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then... Um, we understand that uh, in this uh, 2018 statement that the court um, looked at, EIA also confirmed Anwar R's role as the head of investigations um, at Branch 251, mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking. But he also said that Anwar R, um, being a Sunni, was not in a position to um, be able to punish the officers who used a torture during interrogation, even if he had wanted to. So that's sort of alluding to the shift in hierarchy and loyalty that um, Christoph Reuter was also describing in our in our talk earlier uh, today on the podcast. And um, yeah, that's interesting because it, it also partly plays into what Anwar R uh, was uh, saying about himself uh, last mm -hmm. week. 
at this stage, Fritz, what does this tell you, you know, as a lawyer about uh, Iyad A and his strategy in this trial? Well, in terms of strategy for this trial, not much. I think early strategy of, of Iyad A's defense was to get that um, er, that 2018 um, statement dismissed. That was rejected uh, already pre-trial and was introduced as evidence um, in court this week. So... For the coming months of this trial, we don't really know. And I talked to one of his defense lawyers uh, last week who mm -hmm. confirmed to me that for now, they're not planning to give a statement um, on his behalf. He's not planning on talking himself. They're not um, planning on talking to media. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it looks like he will wait and see for now, uh, see what presented uh, evidence in court will bring. Mm -hmm. And uh, who knows, maybe he'll talk later or um, stay silent until the end of a trial. It's possible. For more information on the court sessions this week, uh, you can check the trial reports that we'll link in the show notes um, that are prepared by um, various different organizations. Yeah, and uh, what's on the schedule for next week, Karam? Well, there will be court next week before it will take a break again. And uh, from what we know, Anwar Abunni will testify at the court as an expert witness. He is the Syrian human rights lawyer we talked to in the third episode of this podcast. So we will report back to you and uh, we will uh, tell you what you'll be telling the judges. And we'll give you some more background on the second defendant in this case, the so-called smaller fish. We have heard a lot about the main accused, Anwar R, but EA's story is also an interesting one and we want to share some insights with you about that. The thing about EA is it looks like one could say he might have just been one of those characters that were at the wrong place at the wrong time. But there might just also be much more to his story, as there is much more to Anwar R's story. And we will talk to someone on next week's episode, a family member of Iyad A's, who will help us find out more about that. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Uh, have a good weekend. And as always, if you like this podcast, subscribe to have the episodes come to you automatically every week. And do tell your friends and colleagues and help us uh, raise awareness for this important trial and the bigger uh, story of uh, accountability for Syria. And to our listeners who have already been supportive of this podcast, uh, a big thank you. And if you feel like donating, you can... Uh, Click the link in the show notes or uh, click the support this podcast button on our website. Branch 251 is listener supported. It is produced and hosted by the two of us. Thanks again to Martin van Dormale for this week's production feedback. I am Fred Streif. And I'm Karam Shomali. Have a great weekend and see you next time on Branch 251. See you then. Raslan is, is not a total exception. You have people with this mindset, uh, their personal moral frame, they uh, believe in the law, they believe in, in the idea of law and justice in a system of total injustice. <laughs>